I'm going to say a couple things before we start, and then I've got a, a long introductory message to probably one of the most uh, fearful sermons and series of sermons that I've ever preached in my life. And it's fearful not because I don't believe it's true. It's fearful because I know it is true. And yet I know how far my own life is from reflecting the words that I will tell you. And yet that's no excuse. It's no excuse to say it's not right now. We must press forward and become what Christ has intended for us to be. So I say that. I also want to address um, something that's on my heart quickly before we get to Titus. You should be at Titus. We read it. And in case you think that might be time filler, we need to remember in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Paul told his son Timothy, do not neglect the reading of God's Word whereby many are converted to salvation just by the reading of of the Word. We read the Word weekly because it converts the soul under the power of the Spirit of God. Not the words in which I add to it. Simply by its power it converts through the Spirit many to salvation. We read it because we believe the Word is the power. Not the man and personality that surrounds it. The Word. I want to address one thing, though, uh, which doesn't pertain to Titus. And notice I'm stepping from behind the pulpit. Um, and, it, and it does pertain to Titus, but not fully. I want to um, it, it update you just shortly on where we are as a family uh, in the adoption process. I've had a flood of interest in that lately, and I know it may be my failure to remind you and yesterday I was in a seminar and it just came to me. I need to take public time to tell you this. Our burden for uh, adoption has only grown in these days as we've become aware of God's will for these little children. 210 million children. Only 5 to 10 million of them living in shelter. If you do the math, that's between 200 and 205 million orphans living in this world with not so much as a warm place to lay their head as they sleep on the streets at night, abused and neglected by this world. And you say, what does that have to do with God and His Word? God says, I am the Father to the fatherless. And James said, pure and undefiled religion is simply this, that you care for the widows and the orphans. And I'm telling you, church, I am convinced, convicted, and empowered by the Spirit of God to do all I can for the 210 million orphans in this world who do not have shelter and do not have home. What are we doing? Well, by God's grace, hopefully this year we'll bring one of them home. And I say that not to brag, but to simply challenge you that every family in this congregation can bring one home. Every family in this congregation can bring one home. And James has said we should. And Jesus even said in John 14, I will not leave you fatherless or orphaned in this world. I'll come to you. And somewhere in this world, there are children who are saying, when will he come? And all I'm saying to you is, fill up the room that's empty. Give up the new car. Don't move to the bigger house. Don't buy the house on the lake. Bring one home. Bring one home. And bring Christ to that one. 
What else can we do? As a church, we've set aside a fund. Many of you have heard of Shawana's Hope, and it's a great fund. But I want to encourage you, not that you can't give to that fund, but I want to encourage you, give to the Micah's Hope Fund. It's at your church. It's at your church. And it's to fund the adoption of these little ones. Many of you know that two years ago, Micah Fleming went to be with the Lord. And yet we honor Christ in his life by saying children will come home for generation after generation because God saw fit to raise funds through the life of that little man. And in that, he will stand at the throne of Christ and cast back crowns to his father, saying, my life mattered. Ten months long, my life mattered. Look at these little ones who've come home. So I'm saying, give. I'm saying, take one home. And I'm saying, it is not an option. It is a duty and a privilege. You say, I don't have a burden for orphan ministry. And I simply submit to you, you lack part of the heart of God. You say, that's for somebody else. James says, it's for you. And you say, what good will it do? One out of 210 million. Oh, it'll do a world of good for that one and for many others whom that one may reach. Please, I beg you, by the name of Christ, not out of guilt, but out of honor to Him, bring them home. I'm begging you, bring them home. If you don't have a heart, pray for a heart like God's who says, I'm a father to the fatherless. Hopefully this year we'll bring home an example to you and then you can watch her live a life she would have never had in an orphanage in China. But there's other countries. Ethiopia, Russia, Kazakhstan, South America is filled with these orphans. Older and younger, they're there handicapped and healthy. They're there waiting that Christ would come to them. Won't we go to them? I say that because I'm compelled. And I don't apologize for it because it is the heart of God. And it's very practical. And I think it fits with this sermon series because we often get in dry orthodoxy tied up in our intellectual faith and acknowledgement that we are saved by the power and the awesome grace of God, that we're regenerated by His Spirit alone, that we stand on the Word alone, that Christ alone is our sacrifice, that it is for God's glory alone in which we are saved. We stand on those truths and so we should, and yet it is our churches who are lacking the adornment so many times of the sound doctrine of the gospel. And orphan care is one, one, one large piece of that puzzle, but it's not the only piece. I think it's important that we turn our minds and our hearts to this letter to Titus. As we scan the landscape of the evangelical church today, it is abundantly clear that we are losing the fight for the future generations of this nation. That is, we, the Christian church, are losing the fight. Statistics are not what we place our faith in as believers. Amy often reminds me, I hate statistics. And she hates statistics. But they're simply a gauge where we might see, is the job being done? It's just the guide. It's not the law. But it is a measure of how we're doing. Well, here's some t- statistics that should shake us to our very core. These are not old statistics. These are the most recent of statistics. 
In 2002, six years ago, T.C. Pinckney reported to the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, that 88% of youth abandoned religion and church, Christian faith, 88% of the youth raised in Christian churches abandoned the faith at 18 to 19 years old, the first or second year of college in this nation. 88% abandoned the faith. George Varna, in 2005, did a new study. Listen to this. 85% of born-again teens. That's how they identified themselves on the survey. They were given plenty of options, and they checked, they marked the box, born again. They reflected attendance at church regularly. At least two to three times a month, they were in the church door. Okay, these are not the streets on the... These are not street kids. These are church kids. George Barnes said 85% of these born-again teens do not believe in absolute truth. 60% agreed with this statement. Nothing can be certain and sure except the things you experience in your own life. These are not secular kids. These are not street kids. These are not thugs. This is middle class America. This is your teenager. This is my future teenager. More than half, more than half of those surveyed believed, born again, born again Christians believed that Jesus sinned in his earthly life. What does that say? About 88% of our church is not a church. It's apostate. Or it's confused. It's unregenerated. It's lost. I just say this. We're losing the fight. America is paying a price And that price will be extreme because of the paths we've chosen in our practical outworking of doctrine, the sound doctrine of the faith. Here are some simple facts. I didn't do this math. Vody Balkum did this math. I checked it. It's correct. Not that he can't do math, but I know preachers. We don't do math well. So you may just have two preachers that can't do math. But at least we agree. I think it's right. We currently have a birth rate in the evangelical church in America of two children per home. We're going to get to that in this message series. Two children per home. We're losing about conservative 75%, 88% if you take the figure I quoted. We're losing 88% of them, okay? But for just for graciousness sake, we'll say 75%, okay? Are walking away from faith at 18 to 19 years old. That's, oh, we're only having two children in our homes. You're doing the math in your head. If this continues over the next four generations, the evangelical population in a subgroup of four million people will shrink to 62,500. If you took a cross-section of four million evangelicals, what I'm saying is that in four short generations, that would be their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, their great-great-grandchildren. Some of you saw your great-great-grandparents alive. That's not that long. That's not that far away. And we will reap the consequence of our choices in this life in this practical area. And the consequence will be we will go from 4 million in that subgroup to 62,500 in that subgroup. So you keep extrapolating the math out. It doesn't take many generations to have zero in that subgroup. What am I telling you? 
like the particular Baptist church in London and in England in the 1800s, we are dying as evangelicals in America. We're dying in America. Our faith is being jettisoned. People are walking away. But don't misunderstand me. As pessimistic as I am about the landscape of our world, in our society, in our culture, I see unprecedented growth in the church worldwide. It's a testimony to God and His power to save. Currently, worldwide, the context is much different. Christian Christianity has exploded in Africa, in Asia, and in South America. We're now seeing the first waves of missionaries coming from Asia to the United States to help us heathens hear the gospel. Hudson Taylor went to them. Lottie Moon went to them. Thank God they did. Those seeds are now coming back to help us. One church leader commented on this scene that he's seen that the church will continue to transition world leadership to Africa over the next 100 years. The seed of Christianity will be on the dark continent and they'll be pleading to us heathens to come to the truth. Because I'm telling you, God's kingdom is forever and His church will never fail. They will begin evangelizing our teens and our society. We are no longer a Christian leader in the world. We're fooling ourselves to believe that. So, what was the response of the mainline and evangelical church over the past 30 years to this slide away from the Bible and away from truth? The evangelical church has trusted not in the Word of God, but in the Fortune 500 for its direction. Our churches have become increasingly, increasingly segmented, programmed, organized, and consumer-driven. What has been the response of the failure of the church? Jettison the Bible and get to something people care about. Trendy issues. Segment them. They don't want to hang around stodgy old folks. Put them in a group by themselves. They'll come more. And yet in 30 years, we've seen no stemming of the tide away from the truth. It's increased. We've seen the invention of children's ministry and youth ministry, men's and women's ministry and singles and college ministry, drug rehab ministry, divorce recovery ministry, and on and on and on. And we could list them by the hundreds. We've seen the creation in the last 30 years of these things. And have we seen the fruit from these ministries which we thought we would? No, 88% of our youth who leave youth group never come back to church. What, What has been the result except catastrophe, disaster? We've seen increased losses of the coming generation, not gains. Young people are absolutely disillusioned with the church as they have experienced it in their younger years. They're disillusioned with this game that's being played in evangelicalism. evangelicalism. They want to give their lives to something that matters. And the church hadn't offered them anything yet that matters. And yet secular pursuits offer them something that matters, so they go after it. Other religions, Islam and others, offer them hope and offer them a place of power and, and control, and they run after it. We are in desperate times, wouldn't you agree? But we have hope. We have hope. I've been increasingly convicted that we must return our families and our local churches to the biblical model if we hope to effectively win the lost, disciple the saved, and generally be the pillar and the ground, the foundation of the truth. We must become biblical in our approach to family 
in church. Over the past month, I've prayed, I've studied, I've argued, I've discussed the principles with Christian men, I've sought counsel, I've read commentaries, I've read articles and magazines, I've read books, I've read the Bible. What I hope to teach you in the next weeks is that the Bible is not silent on how we should live our lives as New Testament believers in the New Testament church. It's not silent. There's much to be said. The Bible's not silent on the method we are to employ to reach the next generation. The common byword in our day is, don't worry about the method, just get the message out there. That is unbiblical. Well, it doesn't matter. People are being saved. First of all, you don't know if they're being saved. Because what they're coming to is not what God called them to. And they're quickly leaving at 19 years old. So are they saved? And I would say no. Here at Grace Fellowship, we're seeking to become a church known for multi-generational faithfulness. It's not my term. It's someone else's. But I like it. Multi-generational faithfulness. We want to stem the tide for that fourth generation. We want them to rise up and call us blessed because as Psalms says, they taught me about the day of the Lord in Psalm 71. And when I faced the battle, I did not turn back because I knew God's great works. That's what we want for four generations from now. Not a decrease from 4 million to 62,500, but an increase from 4 million to 400 million. That's what we want. And that's the hope the Bible offers for believers. I want to quickly say this. This is not a program. I'm laying a large foundation. Big. Big today. Not real deep yet. Just big and wide. I'm going to get deep. But I want to catch you with this. We are not rolling out a six month plan to change the world. I'm calling you to, like I did for the orphans, is I'm calling you to your orphans that live in your home. They're spiritual orphans. And they need a daddy. And they're begging for a daddy and a mama who will raise them in righteousness. They're begging for it. That's what I'm calling you to. I'm not calling you to lay your life down on the altar of some program that will be here and gone tomorrow. I'm calling this church to radically come to the vision of God for His church and live it for a lifetime. And then let God be the one who multiplies His church in the generations to come. In four generations, they may not know Grace Fellowship. But what they may know, if they study hard enough, and if we submit ourselves to the grace and power of God, is that some little church and a little outcropping of Alabama took God at His Word through the grace of faith. They believed what God said He would do, and they did it. And now there are believers on every continent, in every stretch corner of the world, and the kingdom is now becoming to bear on the cultures around the world, America included. You say, it can't happen. We're just a little congregation. (laughs) It happened for John Bunyan. He preached to 120 people a Sunday. How big is this congregation? About 120 a Sunday. And John Bunyan still speaks. And his people still speak at Bedford, though they're dead and gone. It happened for Andrew Fuller, who preached to less than 100 on a weekly basis, and yet stemmed the tide of doctrinal error in his generation and returned a reformation to England for the family and the church. It happened for him... And we stand in His stream as particular Baptists. I'm telling you that in the next few weeks, I want to dig down deep into this letter that Paul wrote to Titus. In this letter of only short, uh, three short chapters that you heard read to you like it would have been in Titus's churches at Crete, 46 verses long, 50 sentences, a mere 750 words, Paul gives us clearly... Clearly, a structure and a plan for multi-generational faithfulness. He gives it to us. If not programs, then what? 
That's what we will hopefully answer over the next days. You might ask, who are these messages for? Who are these messages for? That sounds good, but who are they for? Can I tell you? They're for those who are elders among us. You'll be asked and tasked with the responsibility of leadership and discipleship. You say, who's an elder? I thought we had three and a half. (laughs) If you're here and you hear me talking and you're in this place and you have no children living in your home, you've raised your children and they're gone. You're an elder. You can't say, it's the elder's fault. No. It's you. You'll be tasked with that. These messages are for the young men and women who will be challenged to submit to these elders for instruction and training. These messages are for singles, young singles, who will be called to radical thoughts of sacrificial lives for the sake of the gospel and radical families that they will one day have by the grace of God, doing it right from the start. If you're here and you're a child, children, listen to me. Listen to me. I'm saying to you, these messages, children, are for you. I'm talking to you. I'm exhorting and calling and begging and pleading with you to come to salvation and come to obedience of your mom and dad so that you might be a future generation of righteousness. Children, I'm talking to you. Older people, I'm talking to you. These messages are for the church and as it presides here at Grace Fellowship, for the whole church and for us. This is a challenge. And I'm challenging you to live sound doctrine as Peter, as Paul instructed Titus. I'm calling you to live by sound doctrine. I'm going to teach it to you I want want to, under the grace of God, live it in front of you so that we might be partakers in the coming revival which will sweep this land, I believe, starting with this generation and going forward for four and eight and 16 generations in the future. I'm talking to you. I'm pleading with you to actively respond to the Spirit as I preach And I desire radical transformation in our families, in our church. Resist the discouragement of Satan, which he's already started in your minds and your heart, even as I've spoken to you. Some of you are very discouraged already. And I want to just point some of those discouragements out to you. You're hearing in your mind and in your heart, you cannot do this. You're too busy. You'll lose friends over it. This teaching's too radical, it's fanatical. Be realistic. No one does this anymore. It's old-fashioned. It's old-timey. It's out of date. We don't live this way in America. That's what he's saying to you. That's what your flesh is saying to you. And what I want to say to you is that by God's grace in Christ, based on the authority of His Word, you can do this. You can do this. The friends you will lose will be replaced by fellow soldiers in the army of Christ. The fact is... We will be part of the coming revival, not part of the past three decades of failure in the commercial-driven church, which brought us nothing but decline and desperation. I'm preaching for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Let's look at this. Let's look at this. Now I've given you an overview of the scene, and I want to give you an overview of the book. I'm going to give you an overview of the book. This is the next to last letter which Paul wrote next to 2 Timothy, which he wrote while he was facing impending death. In A.D. somewhere 62 through 67, I say 64. I believe it's 64. I'm not 100% sure. And I, I know he wrote it in Macedonia, either in Corinth or Nicopolis, which he mentions at the end. And, and just for sake of taking, you know, not standing on both sides of the fence, I say Nicopolis, 
because he calls Titus to come to Nicopolis. Once he's delivered the letter and taught the saints, come to me when, when these other two men come to re- relieve you. Come to me here. I'm wintering here. That sounds like a man that's in Nicopolis writing. But if it's not certain, it may be Corinth. The letter was written between the two Roman imprisonments. So you had the first imprisonment of Paul, which he was released. He went on his final journeys, and then he settled in, and he was then rearrested after writing this letter. And then he penned Second Timothy while in the cell. Ready to die. This is a letter written to Titus, written to the church at Crete, and written to us. To all of those audiences. Titus. I've told you a little about the writing of the book. Let me tell you about Titus. Titus is a Gentile believer like you and like me. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He grew up in a lost and pagan culture. But he was probably brought to faith under Paul's teaching. Look at verse 4 in our text. To Titus, what? My true child in a common faith. Now, that true child label was given to him and Timothy. And we know Timothy was brought to faith under the teaching of his mother and grandmother and then brought really to an understanding of the Old Testament in Christ through Paul. So he's a son Titus is a son. I think he was converted under Paul's ministry. Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts. And we don't know why Luke didn't mention him. It's kind of suspicious because he was there with Paul. I'll give some thought to that in a moment. But he was with Paul on the second and the third missionary journeys. Galatians 2 verses 1 through 3 is key in understanding this man, Titus. I want you to hear this. If you've got the ability, turn to Galatians 2 and look with me at this. It's key to his life. Then after 14 years, Paul says, he's recounting his relationship with Christ. After 14 years, I went back to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Say, why is this passage so crucial to understanding who Titus was? Listen to this. Are you listening to this? Titus was an example of what a Gentile believer should be. That's high praise. Because where he's going to Jerusalem is to the council to argue that the Gentiles are saved equally without the law and without circumcision. And I bet he didn't pick a dredge off the street to be an example. He picked the best. And said, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing among the Gentiles. And you're requiring them to come under the law of Moses. For what cause? I can hear Paul putting them to the test in Acts 15. Now I told you, Titus didn't mention in Acts 15. But he was there. Because in Galatians, Paul says he was there. I went up because of a revelation and set them before the, 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 uh, set them before them. That's the teachings. Though privately before those who seemed influential. Probably James and some of the other leaders in the church. You know, when you go to make an argument in front of Congress, before you make the argument on the floor, you'd like to talk to some subcommittee chairmen to know how it's going to go. Right? And, Ty, and, and Paul's no different. He called the heads of the heads together and said, let's talk about this in private. I think he did it out of respect for them. I think he did it does not to cause disorder among them. I think he did it to stick his finger in the wind and know how's this going to go when we stand before the council. Because if James isn't for me, nobody's for me. And he wanted to go before the council, but he wanted to know what was going to be their ruling. The gospel, I sat before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. What is that saying about Titus? Paul said, your character, son, is exemplary. And the Acts 15 council said, if that's what Gentile believers believe and look like when they're converted, they're true believers. I'm telling you, Titus was no mere midget in the faith. He was a giant. Though he was a young man, he was a giant in the faith. This man, Titus, 
was faithful. Titus's faith was strengthened by his experience before the council. Can you imagine your faith is stamped? Not that we had to have the approval of men. Don't hear me wrong, but doesn't it help when your fathers say to you, you're walking the walk, boy. You're following the Christ. You're imitating the one who is to be imitated. It must have strengthened his faith. i tell you some other things that strengthened his faith and prepared him for Crete. And that is that he ministered in Corinth, one of the most wicked churches in Paul's day. He witnessed there and he led there with Paul. It prepared him for the lazy gluttons he would encounter, those lying beasts which he would have to deal with in his church. That's Titus. Titus also ministered there at Corinth with Paul. He's mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians, which was Paul's third missionary journey. I'm giving you a large platform with which we're going to build these deep, deep truths on. I want you to have it. You need it. It's necessary because during this message series, you're going to say, who's Titus anyway? What's so big about him? That's the shortest book I've ever seen. Who cares? It's just 46 verses. I tell you, it's eternally weighty and eternally important what will be said. Titus is left at Crete and history tells us, uh, history tells us, tradition speaks and says he lived there and died at 92 years old having been faithfully a shepherd of the shepherds on the island of Crete. 92 when he died. Titus was tough-skinned. He was firm. He was made to withstand the conflict and disagreement. Unless you think he had an easy pastorate, look at that paragraph in 1 starting in verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Not one or two gossips. There's many of them. There's many of this circumcision party who hate your very presence because you're a Gentile uncircumcised claiming you're in Christ. Can you imagine? Like Simeon, Charles Simeon, who stood in the pulpit of, at Oxford almost all his career with, with people who hated his guts. So Titus stood in the pulpit where a lot of the congregation hated him. They hated the very sight of him because he was an uncircumcised Gentile. And he had to face their opposition. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, the largest in a chain of Grecian islands, about 35. This island is about 160 miles long, about 35 miles wide at its widest point, and narrows down to about six miles at some points. It was, it was densely populated. We know from history that there were nine city-states on the island. That's a big place. It wasn't some little outcropping. It was a major thoroughfare for Roman trade between uh, the Roman peninsula and, and Asia Minor. It was a great route of ships bringing things, supplies, and taking supply, uh, goods. And the gospel probably reached there from Pentecost because in the list in Acts 2 is the people from Crete who heard Peter preach at Pentecost. And so somewhere around A.D. 30, the gospel arrived at Crete. And some people got saved and a small church popped up. These people were the ancestors of the Philistines mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and other places, enemies of Israel. They hated Israel. Their, their descendants did. They were characterized by their own prophets and Paul says it and says it's true, as liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You wouldn't want anybody in Paul's day to come along and say, boy, you're acting like a Cretan. That wasn't a compliment. That was his barb that stuck deep. Paul was introduced to this culture when he was shipwrecked there on his way to Rome. Acts 27 details for us his going to Fairhaven on the coast of Crete and begging the captain of the ship, stay here for the winter, in which the man dis didn't follow his advice and tried to go to Phoenix, another port on up north, because it was a bigger and better port. And what happened? The wind became contrary, and they almost died. And Paul came ashore, probably in Crete. They never reached Phoenix. They were shipwrecked. Now, the purpose of the letter is clear. And I worked on this, and it's not grand and majestic, so write it down. It might help you. The purpose of the letter is clear. 
Here it is. Paul was instructing his young pastor on how to faithfully preach the gospel. Practically live the gospel. And establish a church that adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. That's not original. Those are the words of Paul. He was speaking to his young man, telling him that he must faithfully preach the true and sound doctrine. He must practically live the gospel. He must work for the establishment of the church for the sake of God our Savior. Now, I've laid these foundations, and you're looking at your watch and saying, My, my, how will we survive? You're blessed. We, I'm going to, by the grace of the Lord and His, hopefully, grace towards us, I'm going to save some for later. But I wanted to lay these foundations because they're important. And you know why it's important? Because some of you, and I'm not meaning to point a finger at you, I don't want to be specific, but some of you are bored to tears at this point with history that I've just laid. And I want to say you're a product of this nominal culture. You're bored because you don't think it matters what truth is rooted in, whether it's truth rooted in the history of the church, or whether it's just my opinion. You're bored because you'd rather be entertained with some practical little whimsical truth I could give you so you can live tomorrow at work and die for eternity. And I'm not interested in it. And if that's what you're interested in, then this may not be the place for you. Because I'm convicted now more than I was five years ago at the founding of this church, that we got plenty of copycats out there teaching a watered-down, unsound, blown-by-the-wind gospel that's sending people to hell. And I want this church to be founded on the historic, factual church and tradition which the church has laid down by the grace of God. This day was not wasted if you leave here understanding a little bit about the character of Paul, Titus, and Crete because what I'm going to say in the future messages will then stand on that historic platform to speak to you through all generations. And you thought I was wasting time filling space. Listen, your mind must be engaged. Don't believe the lie of the relativistic culture which you live in every day that says that stuff doesn't matter. It's eternally important that this stuff is historical and true. If there is no church at Crete in Paul's day, then there's no need for us to preach the Bible, not only in Titus, but in any point, because it all may be a fairy tale. We must found it on the truth. So I've gone at painstakingly slow speed with a lot of detail, just trying to grasp a little bit of where we are. And I'll tell you, I can kind of feel the sea breeze. I can kind of taste the salt. And I can see that firm, good-postured young man, Titus, looking at a little congregation of house churches and their elders saying, we got to preach the sound doctrine. We've got to exhort them to good works. We've got to do it. Because if we don't, the church will be lost. Can you see him? That's more important than you seeing some practical little ditty to get you through tomorrow. You need to see it. The Bible's living. I've carefully laid this foundation. It has and will do the same to me, as it has probably done, will do to you when we preach these messages, and that is it will challenge you and it will rebuke you. You will leave here some Sundays not liking Titus, and you will leave here some days feeling inadequate to live out Titus, and all of that's good because we are inadequate, but he is adequate. I am confident as I stand here before you that by the Spirit's power, our local church 
will be transformed into a Titus ministry, a Titus 2 ministry that will lead in a reformation. Not catch the tail end of it, but lead it. And I'm asking you to come with me. We will lead the coming generation to faithfulness. In closing, I want to turn your eyes to the key passage so you can meditate on it for the week. Found in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Quickly, Titus read these words penned by Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit, and they're for you. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Titus, training all of us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and telling us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. What is it? What's the blessed hope? Christ. Come. That's the blessed hope. How are we to live till He comes? Self-controlled, upright, and godly. What are we to turn away from while we're waiting? We're to turn away from ungodliness and the passions of this world. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous, who are zealous for good works. I thought He saved us to take us to heaven. He saved us by the precious blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might journey through the power of the Spirit and the application of His Word on a pilgrimage to our heavenly home. The Gospel is for real life. It is for salvation and it is for practical living. I quickly say this. I want to say this will be an evangelistic challenge to you, this study of Titus. Look at verse 11. It's evangelistic. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Implicit in that is, Titus, you've got to reach the Cretans. Be evangelistic and implicit to that in that for you and I. It's Calhoun County must be reached because he's given his life that all people, people from every tribe and tongue and nation and ethnic group might be saved. It's evangelistic. This will be a sanctification challenge. Not just an evangelistic challenge where we share a little simplistic truth, get a little prayer dunk under a little water and tell them just go live the best you can. This is a sanctification challenge. Look in verse 12. Training, training sanctification. Training us to renounce ungodliness. Discipleship, discipleship. Training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. This series is evangelistic. It's based on the fact we need discipleship sanctification. And finally, in this key passage, we see this will be an eschatological challenge to us. Waiting for the blessed hope of the appearing. You see it? Of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's evangelistic. It's discipleship. You say, what's eschatological? It's end times focused. You want to come back? You want to come back? I hope you will. It's not a program. I'm not asking you to join a program, a team, a commitment for a few months. I'm begging and pleading with you 
Grace Fellowship to join me in a lifetime, in a lifetime, in an absolute lifetime into eternity for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Savior. I'm calling you to the plate. Young person, you don't have to go look for some challenge somewhere. I just laid down the greatest challenge ever laid down on the face of the earth. Join Christ for a lifetime of being sanctified so you'll be prepared for glorification at the end. I just challenged you, and I'm asking you to pray about are you going to accept the challenge. And I'm also offering you the opportunity to sit in and observe if you're not quite sure so that he might convince you and convict you that this is the truth. I want to pray. Father, you summarize this truth for us so quickly and so energetically when you say in this Scripture that Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and then to purify for Himself a people of His own possession who is zealous for good works. We have not been zealous for good works. And we, Lord, may not be living very pure lives. And so God, please, please be be about your business. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you as I have and will continue. Send the Spirit to this place in a special way, in a new way. Oh, Jesus, if you might be pleased to pour out your Spirit as we expect some great change and reformation in our homes, in our church, and in our culture. Help us not to join the millions and millions of naysayers who say it just doesn't work that way anymore. Help us to join you in the harvest field to gather your harvest of the coming generation so that we might not look back at our lives at the end and say it was fruitless. I've labored in vain. And so that the next generation and their children's children might not look back and say, oh, had our forefathers taught us godliness under the love and grace of Christ. Lord, help us. Teach us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I realize that we are running real short on time. and I'm not going to take up time to make very many announcements except to say Bruce and his group are not meeting tonight. Okay? And